Welcome to the podcast. It's the worst territory in the world. Personalities, history, and other stories. We know you're craving for more knowledge. Let the champions get their glory. It's the worst territory in the world. Hello, everybody, and welcome. It is that time once again. For your favorite wrestling podcast about Kansas City wrestling, the worst territory in the world. I'm Ben Miller, sitting here with Chris Goff. Chris, how are we doing today? This is take two of this podcast. Yeah, well, I wasn't going to throw you into the bus, but now since you just did, I will. Uh, I, I was uh, the first time we did this. It was probably the greatest <laughs> show that was ever recorded, but then you screwed it all up by, <laughs> I don't know, multiple things. I, I actually this. Hopefully, this is better. I don't have to edit anything with your 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 daughter crying in the background so my kids i've already kicked them out of the house so uh, i'm good to go but i am looking forward to talking about our guest this week who is jay french who is jay french yeah i asked the same question uh he is a guy who i saw on uh video when i was looking at uh you know when i was researching for the casey on the mat central states documentary that was done almost 15 years ago now uh when i was looking that up there's video of this guy named jay french who was a sort of a commentator interviewer gabe and it made me and i told you i go there's this guy i want to find him and i found him he still lives in kansas city and i had never talked to him before and i i had a good time interviewing him yeah i'm i'm really looking forward to that interview uh every interview that you've done so far i always think well outside of dr tom pritchard but even in the Dr. Tom Pritchard interview, there's always these little nuggets about it, it. It's so cool to hear people's perspective who maybe even never worked the territory mm-hmm. about the territories in general and about how Kansas City was maybe perceived by some of their peers. So I'm really, really looking forward to this interview and and learning more about uh, the dying days because you guys discussed the dying days of of the Kansas city territories, so to speak, correct? Yeah. It's basically for anyone that's in Kansas city. Now uh, wrestling in Kansas city locally uh, on a higher level at the territory era, uh, they sort of went out 89, 90, right around there. So we're talking, I mean, over 30 years ago, which is hard to believe, but that period from like when Vince started WrestleMania, so 85 ish to 89, 90, that period is a, uh, a weird period in Kansas city wrestling history because, you know, Harley was gone. Um, you know, Geiger was still running things. Bulldog Bob Brown was here till the end of the earth, you know, and a lot of people have moved on, but you know, a couple of names had come through there like a Marty Jannetty and gone on, but uh, really they were just grasping for straws, hoping to continue to try to be something, make enough money to live on another week on channel 41. But uh, Jay French was one of the guys that came in in 1987 to help Bob Geigel continue and try to make Kansas city better in those final few years. And uh, he talks all about his perception coming into doing that and what the reality really is when he got here. Yeah, that's, and that's, it's, <laughs> I mean, they're the cast of characters that filled this territory, you know, obviously back in its heyday, and, you know, up until now, uh, we were just talking before we got on the air about, you know, Strider and the Central States uh, promotion that's up and running now. I did want to kind of rehash, obviously, what we were talking about yesterday during the crappy recording, which is, you know, I, wrestling is cyclical. You know, we've talked about, you know, the ebbs and flows of the wrestling business. And I really liked your take on this yesterday. And maybe you have a, a new spin on it. But the Kansas City territory 
never has seemed to uh, hit hit the peaks of other territories. And, you know, there's multiple reasons for that location, all that kind of stuff. Are we as a as an industry, not just here in Kansas City, but also on a major scale, are we seeing the final days of is wrestling headed for another boom like in the 90s or are we kind of on the downward spiral from here on out? I, I just think, and what we talked about before is I think wrestling is a, it has turned into much like a lot of other things in life now, a niche audience. Uh, you know, the cyclical sort of theory that people had of wrestling where it goes up and down totally made sense prior to the internet era. And, uh, you know, the lack of kayfabe, which is attributed to the internet. I mean, a lot of things have like changed wrestling over the years, but the internet is the one thing that I think has, you know, because, because based on, you know, Vince would have, Vince was coming out about it a little bit before that to try to get some taxes down in some states, but you didn't have the proliferation of that information everywhere like you did when the internet came around. So really it just, I, I don't see how it could ever come back to where it was. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons. I love listening to Jim Cornette about this stuff too. But, you know, my take on that is it made sense back in the day. Now, after the boom in the 90s where thankfully I got to be there in person when the Attitude Era was going on. But when that was going on, you sort of saw like, I don't know where to go from here, first of all. How can you go even higher than this? And that's something that the Cornettes of the world would say, yes, I told you so. You gave too much away. And they did. They did a ton. And I don't know if it was out of desperation or just at that point. That's when reality television and all that crash TV or whatever you want to call it was happening. And, you know, wrestling was joining the crowd. Now, look at reality TV now. It's for the most part, sort of it's morphed into something different. It's not how it used to be. We're not seeing Rock of Love bus anymore. And like, let's try to <laughs> I know, remember like that all, show. The, all the crazy VH1 <laughs> reality shows like those are pretty much dead. You still have you know, some like, you know, Truman show like cameras where you're like watching the Kardashians, but, and, and I just don't think you'd ever hit that again in wrestling. I don't think it's ever coming back to where it was, but the people that love wrestling will always be around. And that's why, you know, you see a lot of people today taking advantage of the smaller group of wrestling fans are willing to pay more money to see what they want to see and to get closer to, uh, to wrestling as far as like, you know, VIP treatment, extra special, you know, goodies that are given to them if they pay just a, and an additional $50 or whatever. And I just think, that's where we're going. I mean, that's where they go into sports now too, Gabe. I mean, yeah, get sports yeah. is like that. You know, they're not building stadiums now that hold like a hundred thousand people. They're building them that hold somewhere between, you know, 25 to 40,000 right around there because less people can afford to do it, but the ones that can are going to go and they'll still make money. It's just not going to be as mainstream. Do you think there's a possibility and I, and we didn't talk about this yesterday. Well, we kind of touched on it. Do you think there's a possibility that a group now, again, knowing that wrestling in your opinion is never going to hit a boom period like the nineties again. Is there a possibility just speaking of the Kansas city territory for a group, for somebody, I mean, it was attempted with the NWL with Metro, you know, all these different companies. Is there a potential for the Kansas city territory to ever take off into a different level? I'm not saying, you know, um, you know, a level like, I don't know, ring of honor where it's on pay-per-view or whatever, but you know, that's again, all subjective. Do you think that, that there is a chance for Kansas city territory to thrive? I mean, I'm not trying to be negative here. I really am not. I'm I just know. being, re I'm being a realist here. Uh, I mean, from Metro pro to NWL 
to then Journey Pro to now Central States Wrestling in Kansas City. Uh, there will always be shows that draw more because, I mean, Strider drew a good show the other day. Right. Uh, right. But, uh, you know, I mean, look at the look at the national level. I mean, usually the, the indies do sort of follow the national level. You talk to some guys like Michael Strider back in the, the late 90s, early 2000s, you could put a bunch of green guys in a in a show and draw 1,000, 1,200, 1,500 people. It was amazing, you know, because it was just so hot. And if there was a if there was a sign that said wrestling, they're they're willing, you know, they're gonna draw a big house. I mean, Strider will tell you he was selling out like the the St. Joe Civic Center, and he was like a year in the business. I mean, he knows looking back, like that was just people, it was just so hot, it didn't matter what you threw in the car. And that's how WWE hmm. was at the time. So it sort of parallels that. So what are you paralleling now on the national stage? You have two companies who are uh, going down in ratings. And right. I, I mean, like we talked about, it's never going away. I don't know about AEW long-term. I mean, they have enough money to stay here for a very long time. WWE is never going to go away. There'll always be some version of it. It's just not going to be as mainstream or as widely seen as it once was 20 years ago. And it's, uh, and that is because the, you know, there's just so many more options it's changed. Uh, and you know, for the people that like what they see today, I guess they'll continue to watch it. Um, but you know, it's lost a lot of people too. You know, that that's always something that when you're, when you're promoting a show, uh, you know, I would tell you about when you were promoting shows, it'd be like, look, some of the shows that you promoted, I wouldn't have promoted. Now, was I was that right or wrong? That's debatable, you know, but it's because you were going with what was hot at the time. Yeah. And there's nothing and you try to do that. Definitely. But then there's also the I guess the old school. <laughs> I keep going back to Cornette method, which is like, you know, do what has always worked is always better long-term, but doing what's hot now is better short-term. So which right. one are you trying to do here? You right. know, and it's, uh, so I don't know how it's going to go on a national level. I know Kansas city will never, will never hit uh, some kind of height that they had in the seventies, early eighties, because that was just different time, less options. I mean, my children, uh, they sort of go in and out of wrestling. They, they watch YouTube and they just do a million other things and go to live events like that. So um, you know, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how it sits in 20 years. I, I, I and that's, I, I think you just hit on something really, really super key. And that you touched on earlier is that the consumption is different. You said your kids watch it on YouTube. A lot of these wrestling fans, these niche wrestling fans who you described as paying more, you know, to see you know, a less amount of people paying more to see, you know, content and stuff like that. You got to think a lot of these people aren't attending live shows. So maybe the future. And again, no, I don't think anybody has a great business model for this yet. Sorry, IWTV and all that kind of stuff. Um, it may be the future is just a, a, a streaming consumption where, you know, a, a big company will come, will come down the pike and, they're, you know, they, of course, you have to do wrestling in front of a live crowd, but maybe their main business model is, is a streaming one. And, you know, uh, speaking of, you know, booking for now and booking for the future, uh, Strider is a perfect example of the old school mentality can still sell tickets. I sure. mean, there is nothing on that show that would be deemed controversial or um any anything other than just old school wrestling i mean he's got a guy that may you know luigi primo who's a pizza gimmick guy but again every show Look, i believe comedy has to have gimmick 
comedy gimmicks are fine. Like right, I, exactly. But, That's what I'm I saying. give him. I give him trouble because Cornette just just buries Luigi Primo, and I understand why because it's like that's what's so that's the that's the thing that's going to get all the headlines right that's the thing that's going to get the eyeballs the guy throwing the pizza up in the air and that drives him nuts because that takes away from the main event that's 10 times better right but but that's i i get it like you always but at the same time like metro nwl we had our comedy segments absolutely i have a i always have a major problem and i complain all the time to my friends about dave Meltzer's take on storyline segments okay because when i was writing uh for wwf or just when we just have angles like that on an independent level it's like i enjoy uh segments that are just a comedy a breather match between you know a hell of a uh, tag match going into the main event i want you know i do subscribe to the vince mcmahon theory of let's have a let them down match then get them back up for the main because it is hard people get uh, tired just like completely you know when you have back you cannot have a full card of in of awesome five-star matches because by the end of the show people are fatigued it's not that's my opinion and so i like the comedy stuff i always had that too because i'm not making it the main thing i'm making it sort of like a breather match and dave Meltzer always just buries those segments on pay-per-views or television shows and i'm like what what is I, that's I, I I hate the way he does that because he only wants five star matches with a hundred flips. He doesn't like the the story the storyline angle that's going to you know have a confrontation in the ring or have some kind of gimmicky thing that's going to lead to the match next week in the main event. He hates those, and I think those are a, a key part of a wrestling show. I I think it might be the one of the most key parts. I think when you look back, and I can't wait to do. We talked about it in the in the bad audio one i can't wait to do nwl episodes because really digging into you know the thought process behind some of our long-running stories i mean we had some stories that were months and months and i think a year in the make you you know what i mean like the whole uh uh, blaine meeks Dak draper thing like i mean but that's what i think kept people coming in and out i mean of of not only watching the television show which by the way do you did you i think we did know the ratings of the television show correct Oh, the ratings of our television show on 38 to spot were awesome. Like yeah. locally, we had like huge numbers. We were on at uh, 11 p.m. on Saturday nights, which is pretty good. I mean, of course, you'd love to be like um, it would be fun to go back to the old days of like 10 a.m. on Saturday or Sunday morning. Dude, but that was yeah. just like that wasn't like feasible. But having 11 o'clock on Saturday, I mean, I, I'm a kid that grew up watching uh, ECW at like 1 a.m. on MSG when I was living up in Connecticut. So it's like that didn't bother me at 11. And of course, in the age of DVR, it doesn't matter anyway. But the the uh, yeah, the, those ratings were awesome. And, you know, we were selling and having a lot of we were having an event in Kansas City every two weeks. And they were we were having, uh, you know, I, the venue was in a questionable spot and that was always up for debate. Uh, but I did think that, uh, we drew well in, in our houses, especially when you were, how, how often we were running in yes. the same area, but, uh, but yeah, no, they, they did fantastic. And 38th spot was extremely happy. Yeah. I would love to talk about, I mean, there's so many things that so few people know about where, where we were on the cusp of and, um, before the company closed, but anyways, um, let's get to the interview. You know, I, 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 I would, unless you want to talk about the news and note that we talked about yesterday. Um, but now it's kind of seems like, yeah, you know, what's that? Which one are you referring oh, to? Oh, I'm talking about the whole man. Do you want to talk about the Mandy Rose? Oh, angle? Mandy Rose. I, well, it's just, just, we can touch on it briefly. I, I just think, um, 
you know, like I said, everyone online is going to be pro Mandy Rose because everyone on social media is always for the uh, the underdog and always for the uh, small person being held down by the big person. That's just how it always is. And so right. it's been interesting to sort of see this continue on as she continues to get like how all these people are just outraged at how WWE would treat her this way and how how dare they let go of this gal. And I'm like, you know, then then what's happening now is as more people sort of look into it and understand the full process, they're sort of understanding a little bit more like yeah i can't believe like i saw yesterday several people saying like i can't believe wwe let it go long this long like what she's been putting out there is is not something that's appropriate for someone that's getting pushed on uh, a a show that is on you know uh national international broadcast cable pg whatever you want to call it right it's uh it's I think that Mandy Rose was given an ultimatum a long time ago and she played chicken and she ended up losing. Now she'll win in the short term because she'll make a lot of money off this and everybody's yeah, going to be course. paying to see this. But long term, like I, I don't think in a year or two we'll know who Mandy Rose is. Now, uh, I don't, everybody's like, can't wait to see Mandy Rose in AEW. Okay, yeah, because that works out every time when they sign somebody, they become like a huge star over there. But I, I'm being sarcastic. But the uh, <laughs> I just don't think, um, you know, Long term, I don't think she's thinking super long term there. Um, I don't blame her for trying to cash in, but I also don't blame the company for being like, hey, you're only cashing in because of what we're doing with you on TV and we don't appreciate the kind of stuff you're putting out there. So, you know, if you have a problem with WWE doing that, you don't live in uh, the real world of uh, people that actually have to run businesses. Absolutely. And, and and you know, another thing that I thought of is that uh, WWE is trying to do deals with Disney. You know what I mean? Sure. Like. You can't. and that's that's one thing. That's you're talking about the 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 just the uh the level of like you know graphicness of the of the video and what she's actually putting out there. Which, like I said yesterday, when, when I've had several friends send me like frontal nudity of of Mandy Rose on her on her fan time page or whatever it's called, and like I uh I couldn't believe that she she this has taken this long to get out. I mean, someone that had been one of her followers or pay patreons or whatever they call them uh, had put these pictures out and put them on the internet but uh i just that's one the graphic level of it is one thing the other level of it is should these people be allowed to do this on the side while they're using basically their fame from their one company to do it right uh you know um and that's a whole other thing that i could argue too where i think you know I don't care what anybody says. No one knows who Mandy Rose is unless she's on WWE programming. She's just another pretty girl. And there's a right. billion of them out there. Okay. Right. So um, I, you know, I've, we've had friends uh, that we know, mutual friends that considered doing, you know, only fans pages and they didn't want to ever jeopardize what they were going to do in uh, other realms of uh, television or media, because they thought that might've been held against them. And I think that stigma is coming off a little bit more as time progresses, but I do think that, you know, Mandy Rose is somebody that probably was warned multiple times, refused to do it because she was making such good cash now. And we'll see how it progresses forward for her. I mean, but she's still, here's the thing that that mutual friend that we both have has an OnlyFans page, and I don't subscribe to it, obviously, because she's like a sister to me. But, like, you can still make good money just, hey, look at me in this kind of skimpy bikini. You know what I mean? Like, sure. But, like, I mean, how long can you do – and I don't know how long Mandy Rose has been doing this. Like, it's it's how long can you do that before you start losing subscribers because you're not taking it to the next level? You know I mean? It's well, just, then, I mean, then cash your big old fat paycheck from WWE. And yeah, be happy I, about it. I agree. I agree. But I'm saying it always seems like 
Dude, it's like and there's so many gateway type drugs in this world. And one of these is probably OnlyFans. Start by showing your feet, okay? And then you go on to <laughs> then you go on to a bikini shot. And then you go on to uh, oh, I'll just show a little nipple. And then, oh, by the way, we're gonna show full nudity. And then, right. you know, then then the then they're a porn star, you know. So I, I don't know where this stops. I mean, it's just, just like people that used to be at WWE with me and they'd be in the office, they'd be like, Hey, I'm gonna start doing steroids. I'm like, really? They're like, Yeah. Haven't you read about it? I've, I've done a lot of research and like I can do steroids and it's totally healthy. I'm like, yeah, because everyone I know that gets on steroids does it the appropriate amount exactly when they're supposed to. So then like <laughs> like six, 12 months later, this guy like can't help himself from like doing it like constantly. And I'm like, yeah, he's probably going to die within a large heart when he's 45. But whatever. I mean, that's and, that, that's just how it happens. And look, here we are. Bruce Pritchard is still alive. <laughs> still alive. No. Yeah, I don't think Bruce was ever going to say he took steroids. Oh, God, that makes me want to talk about the, the, the whole rock controversy. Do you want to hit on that real quick? Uh, just about the Joe Rogan stuff? Yeah, about how Joe Rogan said that, I mean, basically, quote, unquote, accused the rock of being on steroids. Here's here's my real quick take on it. Mm-hmm. Who who cares? Um, he, he, I mean, he obviously is. He obviously is. But he is an actor for the most part. I mean, I, I could debate somebody all day about whether I think uh, uh, wrestlers should, should be allowed to use steroids or whatever. It it doesn't matter. I mean, he he looks great. He's he's an actor. He's making a trillion dollars off of everything in in the known universe. Who cares if he's on steroids? That's my take. It, do, it doesn't matter what we say, so it doesn't matter. So yes, you're right. It, who, who cares? But at the same time, I do think uh, I do think it's funny. Like this all started with that. Um, what was the guy's name? Liver the guy King. Selling, Liver King, the supplement yeah. guy. Like yeah. this because he likes to go out and act like he's all all natural, and he was actually selling himself and selling millions of dollars of supplements, saying that he's all natural, and then he gets busted for no. Actually, I take eleven thousand dollars per month of roids. Yeah. Now a lot yeah. of these guys back in the day got around like I don't take steroids. Oh, I just take mountains of HGH. You know, like so it's totally different. You know. Right. Uh, yes, I understand the people that take it out there. Like you have to still work out. It's not just a shot. I get it, dude. We're not stupid. We know you can't sit on the couch, eat cheeseburgers shoot yourself up in the ass and then become a a, a a sculpted statue. I get that that's not how it works, but guess what? I know plenty of people that go to the gym every day, work out hard, eat well, and they don't look anything like The Rock, okay? So uh, The Rock is, um, I think he does, the only thing, I, it's sort of hypocritical because I do think The Rock sort of like portrays himself like um, he doesn't do that. I, I don't know. It's that's just a good a, point. It's that's a vibe. It's a vibe. I don't think it's it's sort of like uh, if you're going to bury like Hogan and back in the day for, you know, trying to tell the kids that do all this stuff and then he's really roiding up. I mean, why can't you use that same logic on The Rock now? Because The Rock is twice as big as he was as a wrestler. And by the way, when The Rock was in the WWE, he would go get uh, a, a liposuction out of his chest on a consistent basis back then to take fat out of his pecs. And this was like in like 98, 99, 2000. And, he, and so every time in raw back in the day, when the dude would come out with shirts, uh, short sleeves, but not have like uh, his shirt off, that was because he was like still getting, you know, recuperating from getting that. So go knowing that he would go get liposuction to get the fat sucked out to now where he is now, it is sort of interesting to watch the development of his body, but yeah, I mean, Man, it doesn't some- matter. 
I thought he only did that to get Hollywood jobs. I didn't hear. I've never. No, he was just vain back then, just like uh, every wrestler wow. is, wanting yeah. to look good. I mean, wait, 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 yeah. wait, wait. Next thing you're gonna, so you're saying wrestlers are vain. Next thing you're gonna tell me is that wrestlers are also like very insecure people. Oh, I know, dude. It it is weird. It, it, people that don't hang around wrestlers would not understand this, but you can see some of these wrestlers that are in better shape than anyone you've ever seen in your life. And they think they're, com- they, you know, what is it? The dysmorphia problem, right? They all yeah, think they're dysmorphia. fat or horrible yep. or yep. like, it's, it's like the same girl. I've seen girls have it too, where they're like beautiful girls, but they just have to have more plastic surgery or collagen or Botox or something just because they feel uh, the insecurity is killing them. And it's, it's like, you know, crazy. It's, crazy. Uh, why can't you just be more like me and just be okay with looking horrible? So, you know, that's fine. <laughs> like, like just, just live your life, you know, whatever. But I anyway. don't. Th- I saw you a few months. Ago. I don't think you look horrible. I think you <laughs> I'm just. I'm not. I'm joking. But my point is, is like I, I, I'm throwing shade on this stuff because these people already look really good. But oh, I'm, it's, I'm, it's insane. Like I've I've literally heard guys that have bodies like Adonis's being like, man, I just need to get to that next level. I'm like, what's the next level? Muscles. The next level ears? is. The next like, level is taking eleven thousand dollars worth of steroids a month. That's the that is the chain that it usually follows. I mean, it's just like that kid that I told you that when he took he was taking steroids in okay amounts. They they the doctor prescribed amounts, and then like you know six months later they see all this they see how well it works. So then they continue to do it more and more and more, and like they just can't stop. And how can you go from like taking steroids and looking like an Adonis to not doing it? That's a that's a shock too. You know, I mean. Uh, I don't know. It's I just something that you never probably want to get started on because it's hard to kick it. Do you want to do uh, do you want to do steroids with me? I, I've, I've been thinking about this for a while. Once I get back on yeah. my workout routine, me and you will just we'll just roid it up, dude. I think it it makes a lot of sense to start doing that in your 40s. You know, I, I, think, I, uh, I know a guy or two. We I got a connection. <laughs> I mean, like, why care about your 20s and 30s when you could start in your mid 40s? So, <laughs> right. um, uh, yeah, I mean, Vince, Vince, well, Vince is probably doing it before then. Vince just got super ultra ripped when he was like 50. You know, I mean, he was still in good shape. You go back and look, Vince had like the the traps and he was like under his suit. You could tell he was in good shape back in the, you know, 90s before he uh, wrestled and had a shirt off. But uh, yeah, he was another guy that was like, how can you peak when you're 55? Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy all right enough of the steroid talk enough of the latest and greatest news which god there's so many things i would like to talk to you about but we don't have that kind of time so you were talking about earlier we're going to jump to yeah. that interview with jay farmer um jay french jay, jay french, french. sorry Holy i know I, there's a buddy from back home named jay farmer sorry yeah uh, friends uh jay french um it, and uh you kind of set it up earlier anything else you want to say before we pitch to this interview no, I just want everybody to, to if you don't know who he is and you don't want to listen to this, you're going to miss out on a very interesting conversation because Jay French is a guy who was there from 87 to 89, 90, saw some interesting cards that were they were putting together in Memorial Hall, was there when Bob Geigel decided, like, it's, I'm done, I'm tapping out, uh, was there, you know, just trying to put a new, uh, you know, jolt of life into this territory before it went out. And he, it was funny to hear him and you'll hear this. He, he sort of talked about how, you know, he's this young guy and he wants to come up here and have this opportunity to, you know, I think all of us young people at one point are like, if I just could get up there, I could revolutionize everything because I'm young and energetic and I can help Bob Geigel, like, you know, get this going again. But when you get up into the actual reality of it, 
it's it's a lot harder than that, especially at that time when Vince was taking over the world. So Jay French was a, a pretty much a utility guy. He was a worker, and then he went on to be sort of a, a backstage guy helping Bob Geigel. So he saw all aspects of wrestling over the course of 30 years, and uh, he's still here in Kansas City, and it was a great, great chat we had. You should listen up. All right, awesome. Let's get to that interview right now with Jay French. It's the worst territory. Joined now by a guy who I've never met face-to-face, but I have been corresponding with via email since 2012, back and forth, but uh, I'm I finally getting to talk to him now. A guy who was with the dying days of the Central States Wrestling Territory, and, uh, you know, it sounds like he did a little bit of everything. His name is Jay French, and Jay, thanks for joining me today. Finally, I get to talk to you. <laughs> at last finally chris and also congratulations on your podcast great job yeah it's fun to uh you know there's so many niche podcasts now you know there's only five billion out there now but something about <laughs> uh kansas city is for some reason no one's jumping on the kansas city wrestling bandwagon uh, territory on a podcast but uh we call this show the worst territory in the world for a reason because <laughs> a lot of people uh including uh, one of my favorite guys in wrestling jim Cornette, and also rick flair they always say negative things about kansas city so you were telling me that you were actually a worker that started in the 70s, correct? Yeah, I came out here in the 70s. Um, I was wrestling. I'm from Florida, so I grew up watching the Eddie Graham, Jack Briscoe version of Florida wrestling. Sure. And uh, did get into business, and I worked in Alabama and Tennessee, or, you know, down around there, Mississippi in the south. Ran into a guy named Rick Ronaldo, who was from Oregon, but apparently he had a good relationship with Pat O'Connor, who was in the Kansas City office. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for somewhere to go. And, and Rick says, I'll hook you up with Kansas City. So I went down, got some photos taken. That was how you did it in the old days. Got some photos taken in the studio, sent them out to Kansas City, and I get a phone call from Pat O'Connor one day, former NWA world champion. And Pat looked at my photos, and I wanted to be a heel, which I never should have been. It was too small. <laughs> and so Pat, Pat goes, you look like you work on the rough side. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And that was it. They called me out here in sight unseen, and I came out to Kansas City in the 70s in the heyday of, you know, Rufus and Bob Brown and Roger Kirby and all those guys. I, you know, hung around for six months or so. Um, you know, my time was up. I, I moved on, but always kept good relations, you know, with, you know, with Geigel and, and Pat. And I ran into Pat down the road when I worked in Atlanta, and he's like, oh, you're really coming along. You're really improving. You need to come back out. And I just took other jobs and got out of the business and didn't return until 87 when I had the uh, bad idea that this was a good time to go back into wrestling with every territory dying. <laughs> with, with WrestleMania taking over, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I'm like, oh, there's still some territories out there. They just need, you know, new ideas. And I thought, you know, Geigel could use some help, <laughs> you know, at the time. Sure. And came out here, and, and, I, and I put the nail in the coffin here. <laughs> so we can talk about Geigel more in a second, but talking about you in the 70s as a worker. So back then, as you said, that, that was a huge time in Kansas. You know, people that live in Kansas City, uh, any territories fans, but they love their territory. That is their home thing. They It doesn't matter who else says negative things about Kansas City. Right. People that grew up going to Memorial Hall think it's the greatest thing ever, and that's a nostalgic thing from their childhood. So when you were coming in as a worker in the 70s, which was a huge era for Kansas City wrestling, uh, what, was the, what was the perception of the territory like then as a worker in the 70s you know on the outside and other territories i mean it was still kind of respected you know because around that time geigel would be you know president of the nwa sure you know from time to time him eddie graham whoever you know they kind of bounce out around and st louis was the mecca 
of wrestling in the United States. It was loosely connected to, it wasn't really part of the central states, but you know, the top guys here would work the opening matches in St. Louis mm -hmm. because St. Louis would bring in, you know, uh, you know, Fritz von Erich, they bring in Jack Briscoe, they bring in Valentine from Texas, you know, so it was, it was the Mecca. So it was still kind of respected. And I know when I came out here, people were like, Ooh, you're going to the Capitol, the NWA. Ooh, you know, like, well, you're, you're, you're crazy, but you know, I mean, it was a good territory. Obviously it was never huge. And I, you know, I think a lot of that is population base. I mean, there's not a lot of big towns sure. around here you know you go up three hours to des moines or three hours you know down to wichita but you know in the south you can go in any town and man the south mentality loves wrestling you know they love to kick in and stomping and threats you know in the promos so you know it was it was still a good territory you know at the time and my intention was to come back and it just didn't happen <laughs> just out of curiosity did you have any kind of relationship with gus Karras? Um, I met him. You know, that was it. He was still technically, he ran St. Joe, basically. Yes, sure. I did. Sure. And it's a funny thing because um, I, I rode to a town that he was going to run with Jim Brunzel, you know, and I said, oh, what's the town like? You know, what's Gus like? Whatever. And he says, Gus is a really honest guy. He goes, he'll pay you to the dollar what you have coming. And which, which, which is kind of funny because the guarantee in those days was $25 and I got paid 27 so <laughs> you got a tip. Good job. I, I did. I got exactly what was coming to me for probably an $800 house, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I never obviously got to meet him, but uh, a lot of people say a lot of good things about him as being an honest guy. And I think that's what a yeah. lot of people say about this area of, you know, Bob Geigel, who I got to meet in later years. Actually, I met Geigel the first time when I was 16 when he was working at the Woodlands because you oh, know, yeah. that's where all the boys were hanging out at at that point after their careers. And uh, we've yeah. talked about that on here before about uh, you know just how the Woodlands was the uh, just where old wrestlers you could go you could go see everyone you saw on weekends up there and you know and they still Bob Geigel was still a huge man you know he still had hands like a catcher's mitt he's a very big man. But uh, no, when I went, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but yeah. when I came here in six. 62. I mean, when I came here in 87, he was 62. And he was he was still a big guy then, oh, yeah. and he was working at the time. They worked some <laughs> programs with uh, Rip Rogers and Abdullah the Butcher, and uh, you know he could throw some pretty convincing looking punches. Physically, he didn't look real good, but he could throw some good punches. Well, I could <laughs> see. I saw him in a match, uh, and and one of the reasons why I, I saw your name, Jay, is not some your your name to uh, to a guy. I'm 45 now, so I, you're not a household name to me. But I'm not anywhere. The, what, <laughs> I feel but, the, bad. but but you were on. So so what? But the, the way. I found your name was because when I was working on the Central States Wrestling documentary, there is uh, much like a lot of the small promotions, they taped over all the early tapes. <laughs> like they would take the right. three quarter inch tapes and Geigel and all these people. First of all, to their credit, no one knew that you know reruns were going to be a big deal. That people are going to care about watching a wrestling match that happened forty years ago. So they would just take uh -huh. the three quarter inch tape that they took to forty one or four or wherever here, and they would record over it every week. So that's why there's not a ton of old footage. But the footage I did have a lot of. Was from the last like the last five years, you know, like nineteen eighty, mm -hmm. like let's say eighty five to eighty nine, we're right in there. And a lot of that stuff is, you know, you would see a little bit of, uh, you'd see some Marty Janetti, you'd see some of the uh, the pork chop cash, some of the newer guys. Yeah. And then I saw a guy on there named Jay French who was. Uh, obviously, he was. You were. I think you had your name on uh, lower third on the screen, so you're either commentating or an interviewer or whatever at the point. And I'm like, who is Jay French? And that's when I figured out that. Um, that's why I emailed you and wanted to see like 
how what, what was it like to be in the dying days? Because that is sometimes the dying days of a territory, as we've seen with other territories, are as interesting as any time because that's when people are scattering, trying to make things work. You know, I've, I've, I talked to you yesterday about AWA and like the dying days of that yeah. on ESPN and just seeing mm-hmm. what they were trying to throw against the wall to stick against this, uh, you know, against Vince and, and Crockett at the time. But what was it like to come in in 87 when uh, you, you said you had a positive outlook, but uh, what, what was it like to, what, what, when you looked around there, what did it look like? Well, you know, uh, when I came in, you know, I had a relationship with Geigel for many, many years. And like I said, I'd come out here passing through to go to Colorado or just to spend a weekend and I'd work, I'd work on TV or work Kansas city house show. I mean, I work with Chris Taylor. Remember the giant Olympic guy yes, that was around? Huge there, guy. Yeah. Yeah, well, he was much huger than me. So I worked with him one time. I worked with Slaughter and Iron Sheik out here just to, you know, just to pass through, get a payday, have some fun, you know. Um, but, you know, you know, in that era, I mean, Continental was doing okay. Tennessee was still doing okay. And, you know, I thought, oh, you know, I want to get back into business, and here's an opportunity. You know, Pat had Pat had left. Harley had left. Geigel was by himself. And I, you know, I'll come out here and do this. And, and it was kind of funny. I knew things were bad. I didn't know how bad they were. At the time, just before I came out here, Geigel had a working relationship with Crockett. Okay, so Crockett had sent some of the underneath guys, like Sam Houston, the Mod Squad. Um, I can't think of all the names. But some guys like that, and they were getting a push in Kansas City, so it was kind of like a sub-territory of okay. WCW. Okay. And, you know, and they would actively promote it on TBS. I mean, you would see coming to Sedalia, coming to Kansas City, you know, Hacksaw Butch Reed and, you know, all that. So I came out here, and I actually worked a show in a little town out here called California, Missouri. Sure, and, uh, sure. I know yeah, where that's yeah, well, I drove there with Geigel, and this was a couple months before I came out. And we went into this gym, and it was packed, absolutely packed. And I go, oh, this is great. I got a nice <laughs> paycheck from Crockett for it. I went in and worked, you know, a 10-minute match and got a nice paycheck. And I go, yeah, it's going to be great. Little, little did I know that it was pretty much dead by the time Crockett pulled out of here. So uh, I'll tell you, I came in here about July of 87. I went into Memorial Hall, and they did a $1,700 house the first night I was here. Which is what, uh, that's roughly probably a fifth of what the rent was at the time. Although I'm sure they had a sweetheart deal, but I mean, just the rent from Memorial Hall would be, you know, Yeah, we, we did have a good deal, and we gave a little kickback to the guy that ran it, so he would give us a good deal. So he got some under-the-table money. So, yeah, it was bad. I mean, you know, it was, it was real bad. We had a crew that worked, you know, they didn't have anywhere else to go. Like you said, they didn't want to leave the business. You know, we had a strong crew of some talent, but... If you don't turn it over and you don't bring in new people to keep it interesting, it's hard to maintain interest when there's a great show on the other channel you know sure sure and and speaking of bob geigel we he's a he was a great guy like as i said i i got off track but i when i met him and then early later to do the documentary and just to meet him he is a humble nice guy who does not live he wasn't some promoter that was taking all the boys money and like building a mansion he he lived in a modest home that when i went to his house and he had autographs of everyone in his basement and it looked like he had been in this house as much reminded my grandparents he'd probably lived there for 50 years you know i mean yeah i think it's the only house he had here in kansas city yeah as far as i know so, yeah. he, w- so yeah. he was just a uh i don't want to call him simple man because that, that's a negative connotation but he was a guy that wasn't a flamboyant guy so i'm sure when you're a young guy because when i worked uh, when i was a young guy working at wwe i think all the young guys have the same idea I can go up there and change the world, which is a good optimistic <laughs> young thing to do. But when you uh-huh. have Geigel, when you walked in, I'm sure you were like, man, um, so what was it like? Did you think this is a guy that's not going to listen to my ideas because he's stuck in his old ways? Was he listening? Like, was he open to, to new ideas? 
Well, there was a little bit about that. You know, I mean, I, I, I was following it, who the talent was, and, you know, I was watching Florida wrestling, and, you know, like you, AWA on ESPN in the afternoon, and I knew there were guys out there who could come in here and do things. And I remember I, I sent a couple tapes to Geigo, you know, back in the VHS days. And it's got, here's some guys in Florida that are kind of mid-card. You know, I think they could come out there and do good. And uh, they ask him, what would you see? He goes, well, I, 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 I don't have anything to play that tape. You know, so, you know, he didn't even have a VCR, you know. So, okay. And then I told him about, you know, Dave Peterson was looking great. He's from here, you mm-hmm. know, you know, from St. Joe. And yeah. he's working up there. And Kurt Henning had just become the AWA champion. And I go, you know, you don't have have a champion anymore the crockett had taken flair away from the territories so like you need you know you need to use him and he didn't know who he was and he said well you know if he's anything like his old man he's a hell of a hand and like it's, i told you he's like no he's way better than his old man <laughs> you know he's a great worker so you know i tried to bring some of those guys in and and we did and peterson and and henning had a couple of amazing matches here that i do have on vhs um you know he had, had a couple amazing matches it was kind of funny because those guys were so athletic oh, yeah. and so quick, and they were working in the AWA. I, apparently, they had bigger rings in the AWA. They were about killing themselves in their first match in Kansas City because they were flying at each other, doing huge hip tosses and all kind of and ex- exaggerated bumps. And they were they were in the ropes all the time. The hmm. ring was just too small for them, which was nobody else had that problem, but those two had that problem. Well, I wonder if they had twenty foot rings. I mean, uh, WWE uses twenty footers, and most people use you know sixteen or eighteen. So yeah, it's a step yeah, off. It, maybe it was definitely it was definitely on the small side compared huh. to what they were doing because they were just every time they would do bumps, they were crashing in the ropes, and it wasn't <laughs> what they were used to. So you know, but you know, those guys are great. But yeah, he tried, you know, and we had some guys come in. You know, the funny thing was uh, we had a couple guys stay over uh you know warlord and a couple of those guys stayed over they didn't want to go back to crockett and do that and then when the crockett deal died which was right before i came in here we tried to exist on our own and down the road i don't know how much you know about this but the texas office tried to create a version of wrestling like vince but built on territories so in other words they wanted to bring florida and Continental and Jarrett and Central States all under their umbrella okay. to be world-class. So what they did was they would, they tried to pitch this to everybody. I don't think too many people bought in. Geigel did. We didn't have much else going on. So basically we teamed up with them. So they would send, you know, Michael Hayes, he was kind of producing for them at the time. Uh, Mantel, uh, Ken Mantel was kind of running it at the time for them. And they would come into Kansas City with their guys, a loaded card. I mean, we had, you know, Missing Link and, you know, Gordy and Hayes and, you know, Chris Adams and, uh, you know, Kerry, uh, Kevin Von Erie. I mean, all those guys would come in here and, and work on TV. But it, honestly, honest to God, it did not affect our gate. Huh. That's amazing. Which is crazy because it, people could see their wrestling on TV here in Kansas City, and it was huge like down promotion there. Promotion or like, what do you attribute that to? That's probably part of it. We had no money. You know, if you lose your audience, it's hard to get them back. You know, as people stop watching Channel Forty One, yeah, it's hard to get them back. And if you don't, if people aren't talking about it, you know, for like an organic growth. You're not going to get it. And if you're not advertising, which we didn't have any money to advertise. So I don't think there was a lot of eyeballs on it, you know, to tell you the truth. Well, it was that, that was during the time, correct me if I'm wrong, they were trying to do the super clash, right? And that was basically where they were having, yes. they basically imploded on each other because all these promoters who said they would work together basically couldn't at the end of the day, right? Because there was too many 
kept Cook's Exactly right. It, yeah, exactly right. And Vince was, I mean, Vern was trying to do the same thing. Vern actually helped us out a little bit. Him and Guy go back to their college football days, sure. you know. Um, and, and Vern was a partner in the St. Louis promotion, too, by the way. Um, so they use some of their guys. So, you know, Vern turned Geigel on to making money off of commercial time because, you know, in every hour slot, you got whatever, 20 minutes in there. Sure. So he, so he had a company that was selling it. So we'd get checks back from them for letting them put their commercials in our show. Okay. So that kind of helped, helped a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, uh, yeah, you know, we, we, we tried to do that, and you're correct about that. And we were going to send, uh, I, I think Mike George went up there for us to work that show. Basically, they had a meeting, from what I'm told. All the promoters got together to have a meeting, and they couldn't even agree on what to order for lunch. <laughs> and and yeah. that was basically the end of it. When you, you have know, the Von Erics and you have Jarrett, and you have, yes. you know, I'm sure that was, no one was used to taking a second seat to these people, I'm sure. No, exactly. And you know what? If they would have just a little bit, I mean, can you imagine the version of it? I mean, they could have taken a crew, a top guy or two from each office, and made them, you know, your tag team champion, your national TV champion, your world champion, and just let those top six guys or so rotate around the country to come to Kansas City and bring in new life as a world champion, a world tag team champion, and then go you know, the next week down to Alabama. And kind of, if you were fair and with the, working with each other in a true partnership, you could kind of rotate some of the guys in and out. And, and you would have like a national attraction coming to your town this week, and they don't come back for six weeks or yeah. whatever, you know. It did never got never happened <laughs> yeah yeah just it is fun to look back and see what you get what you know now and if they would have known then if they would have known and by that time they probably should have known that was after mm -hmm. uh you know wrestlemania three's mm -hmm. huge gate and these matching yeah. you know him adding more and more pay-per-views as time went on uh him oh, being yeah. vince like it's you're gonna have to work together if you're gonna try to succeed but i you know it's easy to play monday morning quarterback now but yes at the time you would think i mean they had lawler they had they had hennig at the time before you know before oh, they yeah. imploded a lot of them probably probably jumped and went up north after it fell apart and of course it they they all did eventually most of them all the stars did anyway but uh oh yeah yeah oh, it was yeah. interesting i didn't know central states was involved in that yeah so actually we cooked up with them and you know it lasted a couple months or whatever and then it really wasn't paying off for them so they left but interestingly some of their guys didn't want to go back to them so we ended up with a handful of guys there was a guy named apollo uh, Missing Link stayed here, Apollo, Grundy, guy with tattoos, and about four of the guys stayed here. And so we gave it a go. You know, we go into Memorial Hall and film four weeks worth of shows back to back to back to back, you know, and sure. did that. And, you know, it did create a little of interest, but, you know, again, there was nobody new else coming in. And that was, and we really didn't have a world champion, which I know we talked about yesterday kind of leads us into the WWA. <laughs> sure. Yeah. What was that? Uh, why did that happen? So if you, if you look up uh, Central States territory, you see that the last year or two, uh, Bob Geigel had a new promotion called WWA. Now, how, what was the transition from Central States to that? Like, was there some kind of financial? Did someone get out? Did someone join up? Did, how did that work? No, actually, it was it was pretty simple. It was really just a name change to really? start to start anew. Yeah, we had worked with, uh, like I said, with the you know Von Eric Group, and they pulled out, and so then we kept a few of their remainders or whatever. And then you know Henning left because he wasn't, I you know, when Henning came here and he went down for Lawler, we were paying him, but we sent the money to Vern. 
Okay. Okay. Vern had hitting on what I believe was a three thousand dollar a week guarantee. Okay. So in Vern's mind, he's paying him, and he can send him wherever he wants to, whether it's Madison, Wisconsin, or Memphis, Tennessee. And so Vern wasn't passing the money on to Kurt, which Kurt Kurt didn't realize at first. And he would say, "Hey, where's my you know where's my money from Kansas City? Didn't they pay me?" And like, no, you work for me. You're, I'm covering you with a guarantee. I'm sending you there. So Kurt came here twice. He went to Memphis a couple times, and then he no-showed us because he found out the day before his third time here that he wasn't going to get paid. So that was the end of him, and you know where he went after that. You know. Yeah, so, um, I mean, he was he was pretty confident. I'm sure Evan knew he could go do something else elsewhere. They needed him. They needed to take care of him. You know, he was about the last thing they had. So anyway, we were left without a champion because Crockett had taken over. And he kept Flair to himself. So Wheaton, Oregon, you know, Alabama, Kansas City, nobody was getting dates with Flair. They just kept him. And that was the end of it. So even though the NWA was still there, it was it was dying quickly. And so we had no world champion. So you need one. So we just decided we'll just create our own. And so basically that was it. It was just a name change to have an alliance, which was a World Wrestling Alliance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, do you remember at that time at all, uh, Joe Pettacino had sure. a show? Yeah. This week so, in pro wrestling or whatever, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Joe would, everybody would send him those tapes as they migrated, you know, for six weeks at a time. <laughs> and as you mentioned, we used to be, we had to be careful where we worked and what we did for promos and who was a baby face and who was a heel because some of the markets would be four weeks or five weeks behind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Because that tape would come back from Topeka and then it would go to, you know, Wichita and it would go from Wichita, go to Des Moines and it would go to Waterloo, you know. And so five weeks down the road after a guy turned heel or baby face, he wasn't <laughs> somewhere else down the I'm road. I'm sure so mistakes yeah. were made and people were at home wondering <laughs> what the heck's going on. But, you know. Yeah, especially if you got two markets. If you got two markets on your... Uh, big antenna on your roof or something. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. So anyway, you know, that's, that was a reason for it. We did. And, you know, we said, Hey, well, you will, we told Don Owens and Oregon and, you know, anybody else who wants to use our world champion, you can use them. And if you know, you know, whatever. So that's what we did. And we brought in, I think, you know, a pretty good show. We brought in Sergeant Slaughter, David Schultz, Tommy Rich, um, you know, I'm uh, Sweet Daddy Seeky from Canada. You know, way back from the past. I mean, this and is a big card for Kansas City. Yes, it was card. a big card. Yeah, and uh, Blackwell was supposed to come in from Georgia too. We brought in some of the Petosino guys because he was kind of running a, a little territory in Georgia too at the time. So we got all those guys came in here for a weekend, and honestly, it it turned out to be. I was just looking through some old. Uh, the books I had of car of you know the lineups and what the house did and stuff like that, uh-huh. and it, it was a very disappointing house. But I did look up, and technically, it was the biggest house we had in my era. So oh, okay. yeah, well, I mean, it deserved to be based on the lineup you're throwing out there. But uh, yeah, it's it, like you said though, man. Uh, promotion is everything. I mean, I've seen a lot of just indie shows that are going on in the last you know twenty years that you know I mean on paper looks like something that should be drawing into the four digits at least at this point in wrestling yeah. history but yeah. it's just if you don't have the you know the internet has helped the marketing but you didn't have that back then so you're paying a lot no, of no, money for no. newspaper or television ads based or radio ads i guess at the time and yeah, uh, you know exactly. it's a lot of money it is no it is you know and i mean you know if it's not piquing anybody's interest then you're kind of throwing it away so do you keep doing it or, or do you quit I, know. I mean if you quit advertising obviously you're dead you yeah. know so so that was it. So that's that was an, it. Was just a simple transition of name, and I think we wanted, you know, Geigel wanted to 
take keep control of this champion. So despite all the people we came in, unfortunately, it would have probably given, if we would have used one of the outside guys, it would have probably given us more credibility or certainly visibility, mm-hmm. especially on the Petticino show. But, um, you know, he wanted somebody who would be loyal to us and we could trust with the belt. Sure. Um, and, and it ended up being uh, uh, Mike George. And Mike George still, we, we talked to him uh, on this podcast already. He still lives in the Kansas City area, still works yep. at 7th Street Casino. I love yep. talking to Mike George. He's a fun, like a great, fun guy to talk he to. He is. He's a great guy. He's yeah. one of the early guys I met in the business when I came out here, and I had watched him as a rookie the summer before in Florida. And he's a great guy, and we stayed in touch all the, all the years. And, you know, when I came here, we've gotten together a couple times. I've sent him on a couple trips. And, you know, yeah, it's been fun. He's a good guy. Great guy. Yeah, so talk about the locker room when you were here uh who was here um you, you talk about mike george but who are some of the guys that came through uh while you were here in the late 80s that went on to big success or some people that you thought were going to be a bigger star and never ended up being one i don't know that we had anybody who went on to become was marty to here? was janetti still here like in the right no, he, he first was, got here okay no he he he, he was gone by okay. then yeah i mean they had some people probably probably in 85 86 that did go on and do well. But sure. from 87, um, when I came in here, we had like, um, you know, Rufus was still here. Uh, we had Rip Rogers. Rip Rogers was actually booking when I came in. Okay. Uh, Earth- Earthquake. Remember Earthquake? Uh, Ferris was his Earthquake name. Earthquake Ferris, yes. Big guy. Yeah, we, yeah, we had him. We had Porkchop Cash, the Battens. Uh, Bobby Jaggers was here after he um, he had this good thing going with Dutch Mantel with uh, – WCW, okay, Crockett. He had them. We had Vinny Valentino, and um, you know that was kind of it. Yeah, yeah, I understand. <laughs> that was, you know that was kind of it. And then we bring in uh, Brody and Abdullah, but they had a weird relationship in that they would never have a finish to their match, no matter where they were. <laughs> never a finish. Guy goes, so like neither, yeah. neither one of them would take a fall for the other, and then come back the next week. And, you know, give it back, you know, and something <laughs> like, like you're just, and when we, and we, I guess we fell for it for a few times. In this we kept territory, in that's here, sort of you know? silly uh, in, in, in looking back. I mean, look, I, I know Absolutely. Things, things meant differently in different eras and like a loss back then I know meant way more than it does now. So I'm not trying to downplay that, but. Uh, when I talked to Geigel about Brody, if I recall, he wasn't the biggest fan of Brody because I think uh, Geigel was a very straight shooter and he always considered Brody to sort of be a pothead, really. So I think he well, had a problem yeah, with that. Very much. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, you know, again, we, we needed people to come in and. Well, he's um, a huge name. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you brought Abby in here and, you know, they had their matches, but basically they would just fight outside the ring and be a count out or, <laughs> or a double DQ and knock out the referee and knock out all the guys. But that that's what you expect off. with them, their, their match, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's what you're- yeah, exactly. And that, that was it. But I mean, you can only do that once or twice without yeah. a finish, you know, and they put them in a tag match. So we had them and. You know, actually, we brought in, uh, if, if you remember from WWE, you know, Joe Scarpa, John, uh, uh, Jay Strongbow. Sure. Well, we brought his son in here. <laughs> what, and he went by, what was it? Strong, he went by Strongbow Jr. in okay. here. Okay. Yeah, and I, I remember talking because I watched Joe Scarpa when he was in Florida when I first started watching as a kid. And I talked to him on the phone, and he called, hey, you could do me a real favor. And I said, yeah, I used to watch you, you know, blah, blah. And he goes, well, my son, he's pretty good. So, you know, we uh, sure. I mean, I think Geico has some hesitancy because, you know, in those days, you didn't want to do anything 
for anybody that had a connection with, you know, WWF at the time, you know? <laughs> yeah, they were the heated, uh, the hated rival, yeah. Yeah, so you didn't want to, but I guess so you figured, like, what the, what the hell, what's Scarpa got to do with it, or Strongbow or whatever. So so we actually brought his son in here, who I think he went on and did some things with WCW as private pile or something like that down the road a little bit. So Strongbow, so anyway. at, the point, at the time, when you're talking about this, he was probably still an agent with WWF at he, the time. He still was. Yeah, yeah he still was. Yep, yeah. he still was, and we, and we did it. And not that this matters because you couldn't hurt a dead territory any more than you could. But we found out that one week when they were filming in Des Moines, uh, they took uh, two of our guys up there, including Strongbow, to work dark matches. <laughs> oh, so, okay. Well, that's... Yeah, Vinny Valentino and uh, Strongbow went up. I think they worked dark matches. I don't think it was filmed. But anyway, you know, I mean, what, what are you going to fault them for? Yeah, get, I mean, get, it's... You know, it... putting your talents on display in front of WWF. I, I, I understand both sides to that. You know, I mean, the, the yeah. worker wants to obviously go, go up in stature and make more money. And, the, and the, you know, the hometown uh, promoter wants to have a little bit more loyalty and to, you know, tell everybody else to, you know, kick rocks. Uh, but, yeah, I, I get it. I understand both sides of that. Uh, yeah, other than that, we did... Oh, well, we did bring a guy in here, Chono, Masa Chono. Oh, sure. Yeah, he became very big over in Japan. He had like a 20, 25-year career. Yeah, we brought him in here young. Actually, it was, actually it was Bob Brown because Bob had some Japanese connections, you know, yeah. uh, and um, they brought Chono in here who spoke like hardly any English, but good worker. You yeah. know, we actually put the we actually put the WWA on him uh, one, one time just to, you know, he was a good worker and you got to change the belt once in a while. So we put it on him over Mike George and then put it back on George a little while later. But yeah, Chona was a really nice guy. You know, as little as we could, you know, talk or communicate, um, it was it was fun. He was a good worker. So we did bring Chono in here who did go on to become, you know, something not here, but over there at least. You know, I think it was New Japan. I don't know. I can't keep track of him. Uh, so, well, I, I was wondering if it was maybe all Japan because Probably uh, one the of the shows that I wanted to ask you about was uh, oh, it's, it's an yeah. infamous show that there was a huge blizzard. Do you remember the show? It was February yes. 2nd, 1989. It was called WWA International Bash. And it was with right. uh, basically WWA was working with All Japan Pro Wrestling. And I've heard about this show because uh, only I've only seen one match that's on YouTube. And it is one of oh, the really? only times that the There's British a video of the show. There's a, something else through the whole show. Oh, is there? Okay. Well, the, the match I've seen the most of, because everybody talks about it, is the match between the British Bulldogs, who had been fired by WWE at that point, facing yeah. the Rock and Roll Express, and uh, that was yeah. in, you know, a dream match that, that happened in a blizzard in front of, I don't know, 800 people in Kansas City. It was horrible. Well, Geigel had, uh, you know, a long relationship with uh, Baba, okay? Mm -hmm. So they wanted to come over here and have a show in front of the U.S. audience, <laughs> You know, and um, so he used Geigel, and they sent some advertising money, but only a little bit, and Geigel advertised a little bit. I was already out by then. You know, I was working a day job, you know. but You needed to pay um, the bills, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I, I came back. I mean, I do the announcing and stuff. So I was, it was a tremendous card. I mean, the Funk Brothers were on the card. Hanson was on the card. Terry um, Gordy and Hanson lost the uh, – they won the tag titles, yes, the uh, all yeah. the tag titles here. Yeah, they they were on the card. Um, some of the guys from Japan. He flew over here. Uh, Tiger Tiger was over here. I can't think. Tiger Jet Singh or something. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I'm looking he was at some over... of the card. It was Jumbo Saruta and uh, Yoshiaki yeah. Yatsu defeated uh, Hanson and Gordy. 
actually the, the Japanese team won the all, all Japan pro wrestling tag belts and then the Bulldogs and the Rock and Roll Express and then uh, mm-hmm. and then you had uh, Mike George facing uh, Dave Peterson in a draw but I since you know Dave uh, DJ Peterson as he's known in AWA like uh, Dave mm-hmm. Peterson to me had the had the look he had the athleticism and I know he he died tragically in a motorcycle motorcycle accident when he was still young but tell yeah. me about him because not a lot of people know about him and I think he should have been a bigger star he was a, I mean what a body the guy had I mean he, I don't think he had two ounces of fat on him and boy he could drink some beer you know but, <laughs> how's that I mean, work it's amazing I don't know I don't have that recipe you know <laughs> so, <laughs> who does he he's a great guy you know but uh, you know I'm not patting myself on the back but he was one of the reasons that you know our, our I kind of had him come back down here because I was telling Geigo you're missing a boat on this guy he's up there in AWA he's looking great he goes, yeah we had him here yeah good young hand you know whatever but we brought him in with Henning and he was great and I think they were done up there he was done up there whatever so he stuck around here but you know Dave was Dave was a bit of a you know, he was a woman's guy, you know, he was a, he was an attractive guy. He had sure. a lot of fun. And, and if they'd, they've hooked up with somebody, he would no show you, you know, it was that simple. <laughs> oh, well, that's, which wasn't, that's a bad, which wasn't great. Guy. Yeah. 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 We would be, you know, running a little show on a Saturday night and where's Dave. And he, you know, he just didn't think twice about it. He didn't care. You know, it was, he, he could make 50 bucks or he could have a good fun, good time, you know, and yeah. that was it. So that kind of hurt. I don't think he did that in WWE when he was there, but he didn't get the push. I don't know why. Um, you know, he wasn't, he didn't have a great voice. He had a very gravelly voice, and he wasn't a smoker or anything, but yeah. he had a very gravelly, rough voice. I don't think he was real creative with promos, so that would probably always hurt him. Um, you know, but, yeah, I don't understand why, and I, I don't think he pushed himself, probably. He was content to just do what he did and, you know, work construction or something, and, yeah, if, yeah, if I'm free Thursday night, I'll come work. You know, sure. it's kind of bad. You know? Yeah, I mean, so it's good. a shame. Like you said, people need some uh, constant paychecks coming in, and that's like at that yeah. time in the territory, it was starting to become what later would be more like an independent promotion at that point, as part you know, yeah. like weekend warrior right. type work, not a full time gig that people were used to before then. Yeah, you know, we had just enough three or four towns a week to keep people here. You know, that was about it. Mm-hmm. You know, we were a little late with paychecks, but you know, you make fifty here and seventy five there, and. You know, back then you could still get a guarantee. You could go into a small town, Hiawatha or Horton, Kansas or something. And, you know, you could send eight guys there and get $2,500 for it or something like that. We had a deal with Fort Leavenworth, which was great. I mean, we go down there and send 10 or 12 guys and get like $4,000, which sure. back then, you know, I mean, it goes well, you know. Sure. So, you know, those things were great, but they were kind of far between. I mean, there were there was a lot of $600 houses, too. Yeah, know? yeah. I mean, that's that, that, that was just – it's very similar to a lot of these uh, territories in the late 80s, early 90s, but – I understand. Well, you know, if you, you know, if you look at it, I mean, if you take, you know, you know how it worked, and that when Vince started spreading out, he could take Butch Reed from Butch Reed and Harley Race from Kansas City. Sure. Um, he could take uh, Wyndham and Rotundo from Charlotte or, or from Florida. You know, and he did that everywhere. You know, and you know, you know, if you cherry pick Henning from AWA, you, you know, there you go. And a lot of those guys lineup. would go to those. You, you did. And a lot of those guys would go from these places and just be opening match guys, you know, there. But but they were making so much more money, you know, and working seven days a week. Brunzel and Blair, you know, all those guys came, left their territories. Sure. And, you know, they they all did that and they all got paid well, you know, so. So did you, uh, did you work at all? Did Harley ever come around when you were there? Was he involved at all? No. 
He, no, he was he was the third partner well before I got here. He was gone. He was in uh, he was in WWE. I think by the time and Pat O'Connor was just kind of hanging around. He wasn't putting any more money into it, but he'd come by the office once in a while and see how Geigel's doing and what was going on. That was about it. It was left to Geigel. Now, funny thing, you were mentioning that card we had here, uh, the big card with. Um, uh, Japan. Yeah. Well, Har- well, Harley showed up for it just to come backstage, and he was trying to poach some of the guys, <laughs> saying, "Hey, hey, if I run some shows here, because I know he went to the Bulldogs and said, if I run a show in Kansas City, will you come?" So wow. there you go. Mm. There you go for loyalty, huh? I'm sure. I'm sure Geigel <laughs> was really appreciative of that if he even knew about it. But he, he did. He's the one that told me about it. Oh man. Well, I, look, it was uh, it was the Wild West then. It's hard to even, yeah. like, get mad at anybody because looking back, it was like everybody was just scrambling to try to not lose their entire, you know, Harley told the story. Like, he was, he, he eventually, after saying no to Vince for so many years, he finally had to say yes because he was trying not to lose, you know, his almost, you know, almost million-dollar investment in the Central States territory that, to yeah. zero. I mean, you know. Yeah, and it did become that. I mean, at the end, Guy was just putting money into it to – you know, I mean, TV wasn't cheap. We didn't have the greatest production, but TV's not cheap, and they come around. Not. You know, every, every month we were we were down to doing it every other week, and then we finally went to once a month. You yeah. know, but uh, that's still it's still a tough uh, tough bill to pay at that point. Yeah, <laughs> sure. So you uh, you end up you end up staying in Kansas City afterwards, and uh, so have you. I the reason why I was corresponding with you a decade ago is because uh, you were you were writing a fictional book about wrestling. Yeah, and exactly. uh, you were telling me about that at that point. But uh, so, wh- why did you decide to stay in Kansas City? Because you've been in Florida, and that seems like a much nicer place to be in most of the year. And uh, <laughs> so, what made you stay here? And uh, have you done anything with wrestling since then besides writing that book? Uh, no, not really. Um, Tommy Gilbert, I think I mentioned Tommy Gilbert was booking for us a little while in the dying days. And he went down to Oklahoma and he was trying to help another independent guy down there do it. Mm-hmm. And, and I went down there for him just to do commentary when they were trying to do, you know, kind of a test, you know, they ran a TV show once. Just sure. To try a to pilot, it, I see guess. what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I went down there and did TV for him once. And I'm sure that was just just about the end of it, you know. I, I mean, I never heard from them again. I mean, Eddie Gilbert had, you know, reached out and kind of wanted me to come help him do come down there and do some things in Continental. But, um, you know, I had just moved here, and I thought I was going to be here forever. So I bought a house, and I got a mortgage. And what are you going to do when you have that for a year? You know, you don't, you don't, you don't run down to Continental. And as it turned out, he wasn't down there very long anyway. So, <laughs> you, know, I, <laughs> you know, it's funny that we, you which got, was surprising, but it's know. funny that you got uh, sort of the the Florida thing uh, that happens all the time, where someone will have a an investor and they see if it's you know they they put their toe in the water to see if it's going to work because uh, the years before uh, we did the NWL here, I got a call from Buck Robley, who I had did oh my not, God. I yeah. did not know Buck Robley from adam i mean i knew who he was but he just i had somehow got my number and he asked he had another sort of angel investor and he wanted to know if i wanted to help him run a promotion in the in the midwest uh because mm-hmm. he knew i had connections i had television uh, spots here because i worked yeah, at the yeah. television station all that and right. you know that's just a very common thing especially since uh wwe and at the time wcw took over everything now it was a lot of the guys who were left out in the dark that only knew wrestling because jay i think you're lucky you actually 
actually had another outlet because a lot of the a lot of my friends that I met in WWE don't have anything else to do besides wrestling. So they're sort of caught in a web of, you know, I, I'm at this age. I'm not going to go start doing something else now. So I'm going to continue no. to hang on with any other job I can in wrestling. And that's that's what a lot of these guys do. And it's sometimes it works. Well, most of the time it doesn't. Well, after that life, I can't imagine somebody doing that for 20 years and being content to sit behind a desk and sell life insurance. Exactly. You know? it's, a, it's such a switch. I mean, because, you know, yeah. it's, it's uh, you're not a, even if you're not a, in the working uh, the worker in front of the audience, you know, there's guys that work yeah. just in the, the building that did all the road shows and all this stuff. And, you oh, know, yeah. it's like a musician, you know, or anything else. Like when they're on the road all the time, mm-hmm. going home and sitting home and being home all week and sitting on the recliner watching TV is not the life you want. <laughs> it's just weird. No, no, at seven o'clock, uh, you know, something goes off inside you. you it, it's just time <laughs> to get out there and perform, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, no, I did stay. You know, I had a young son at the time. I think we moved to his five or six. And I was from Miami, and, you know, Miami's not the greatest place probably to raise a kid. Probably and not. Have, have to have his lunch money stolen every day. So, <laughs> you know, Kansas City's a great place for family, so stayed. Yeah, it, is. it is. It is. It's. It's. Uh, I love being in Kansas City for that reason. I think uh, it gets overlooked many times just because of you know we don't have the huge population and we are just more solid than flam- you know flashy. But, oh yeah, uh, for sure. But yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, I think that's. Uh, and I think that is why. Uh, even though I think you know Kansas City fans would have loved to have had the greatest territory in the world, I think that Bob Geigel and Harley and these kind of guys were perfect for the kind of people that lived in this area because that is sort of they were sort of you know symbolic of you know the, oh, yeah. the the normal guy here and bob and bob was so so relatable to everybody you know like i said he he knew everybody and well of course by the end of the by the end of the territory we pretty much knew everybody that was coming to the shows anyway because there weren't that many of them <laughs> sure sure <laughs> yeah. and yeah. then but he knew that he knew people from for decades before then i mean as you talked to them in the heyday probably when you were oh, yeah. in the 70s everyone knew the front row the second row you know whatever where are they yeah. oh they're sick oh, okay you know it was just funny to have that kind of relationship yeah, even when it was really popular uh huh. No, absolutely. Yeah, there were the, they were they were the regulars. You know, I mean, when I was in Miami, I sat in the same seat every week. You know, <laughs> same seat every week for a couple of few years. You know. So, well, tell me about it, your book. You wrote the, you wrote a fictional book about wrestling, and and how did yeah? Why did you come up with that? And like, what what made you do that? Um, you know, I just thought it'd be interesting. I mean, I kind of like that creative aspect of it. It's called Shane Carbo, uh, professional wrestling shooter. And I mean, you know, a lot of it's based on fiction. A lot of it's, you know, you get an idea from something you saw sure. in wrestling or a program or a particular person and you just develop them. So it's not exactly the same, you know, and it's just fun. And it was kind of like my story, except my story on steroids. You know, if if I was a lot better and a lot bigger and got a lot more opportunity, that's what it would have been. You know, so, you know, it's a guy who started out and in Florida, you know, I don't know if you have heard the stories about Eddie Graham, but you didn't really break into the business in Florida. I mean, he had Bob Roop, who wrestled in the Olympics Mm -hmm. and Ken Lusk and those guys and Mike Graham and Hiro Matsuda. And they would beat the living hell out of you if you came in. They would have tryouts, but they weren't tryouts. Basically, they wanted to protect the business, and if you thought for one minute that you could be a wrestler, try these guys. And they'd throw you in the ring, and you'd go through the four of them. And, I mean, well, Hiro Matsuda broke, broke Hogan's leg. Hogan's leg, in, sure, yeah. And one of those things. So, uh, you know, if they kind of respected you, they would stretch you and kind of hurt you and send you on your way. But, if you look, if, but, but I mean, if you were a goof, they, they would just break <laughs> your leg or arm or something, you know. So that's how that was. So that's how Florida 
was, you know, and so, um, you know, I, I wrote some of that in the book so people can see what you had to do to get into that business. And then, you know, I, from there, the character went to work in other territories and it starts off doing jobs, you know, and, and how little you get paid and what goes on behind the scenes. And then, and then you get your first break and you go to a little territory and they, which is how kind of how it was, you, know, sure. you go to a small territory and they put you on top, even though you would be lucky to work opening match in a good territory, you know, yeah. and that's how you got your experience, but you work six days a week, you know, and did that. So, so this character did that and little by little, he got his breaks and he works his way up, you know, but that's basically it, you know, and what the life is and, you know, girls, girls, uh, you know, attached to wrestlers and are trying to have a girlfriend or, you know, backstage politics is, you know, probably way better than I do. You know, there, you know, there's a mixture of all that. In oh, yeah. There. Oh, yeah. Because it because it's all part of it, you know, even in the territory days, you know, I mean, there's always we were talking always about that. you were talking about this. Uh, we, we were talking about this together. It's like. I love wrestling, and I'll always have, be a fan of wrestling. And, you know, you always love the era of your childhood and sort of your, your yeah. younger years, really, is when you turn into a huge wrestling fan. But I, it's just as an adult being involved in it and as a promoter, I just always had a little bit of uh, – I felt bad just because I feel like sometimes – you know, there's just so many negatives in wrestling because of the, and it's, cha- it's changed over the years. I mean, it's not the same sort of, you know, oh, no. you don't have the same drug problems and, and some of these other things that sort of riddled the 80s and 90s to a degree. But now it's like, yeah. you know, there's just so few jobs and so many people want those jobs that people, I just have personally known people that will go for years trying to, you know, get that job and they put their entire career and family and everything on hold running for that. And I sort of feel guilty promoting mm-hmm. that for that reason you know yeah no i mean it is it's a shiny object out there but you can never quite reach it so get a job <laughs> <laughs> so well, well, now youtube's there so you can go try to youtube account and you can be famous that way that's basically how it's turned into you know yeah there we go uh, but, yeah it'd be nice it'd be nice so uh, uh, what do you think of the aid um I'm elite wrestling with if you watch that at all. Oh, AEW, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I, it's a it's a it's a good alternative. I'm not a. Uh, I will. I, I pay attention to it mainly because I listen to Jim Cornette and he uh, goes over yeah. it every week and he just blasts it uh, unmercifully. <laughs> uh, but uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, but he does that with most things. But the the thing about Jim Cornette and being negative about things is he's usually right. So when, yeah, I, no, exactly. So exactly. Uh, you know, people don't like to hear reality and truth, and a lot of things that he says are, are very true. And it, you know, look, he is uh, in many ways, uh, you know, quote unquote, stuck in the past. But he's stuck mm-hmm. in the past because that's when it was very popular and like made money and like was <laughs> was way more a bigger deal. And unfortunately, because of the internet and lack of kayfabe now, and uh, you know, everything being what it is, oh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's just it's just changed so much that. It it's hard to, uh, you know, compare eras. So that's why I think Jim Cornette just enjoys making a lot of money doing his podcasts and he doesn't have to worry about uh, doing appearances anymore because he's making so much money, which, you know, in wow. some ways I'm very jealous. So. Yeah, right. That's, that's, that's a good goal. That's a good yeah, goal. It is. It All is. Right, well, I hope you get there. <laughs> yeah, I doubt it. This is just a side thing, but I enjoy talking about Kansas City, and I, I enjoyed finally meeting you and talking with you about it because you're uh, a, you as well. You're yeah, a wealth yeah. of information about an era that I didn't know a lot about. So I appreciate you joining us, and uh, we will talk yeah. soon. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. It's the worst territory. All right. Welcome back to the worst territory in the world. Thank you, Chris, for uh, providing us with that interview with uh, Jay French. We hope you enjoyed it. Chris, what are some of the other guests that we've got coming up in the next couple weeks? 
Well, uh, the one guy that we're going to be talking to here shortly will is a guy that me and you know very well. He works for the actually the Missouri State Athletic Commission now, so he's seen all aspects of pro wrestling in Missouri. But uh, his name is Dan Geyer, and Dan is a guy who uh, had a financial stake in uh, WLW when Harley was around, and he uh, did many miles around the Midwest with Harley Race as Harley navigated the independent circuit. Uh, starting in the 90s. And, um, you know, he's been around a lot. He's been around Gus Karras, who, of course, was the promoter in in uh, St. Joe. And he was uh, he just Dan has just been around a lot of it. And, you know, a lot like a lot of people in wrestling, if you enjoy wrestling and you want to um, sort of spend your life in it or have sort of a hobby, all you have to do is sort of just, you know, hang around, listen up you know, uh, start volunteering and you can be a part of it after a while, just, just by showing your interest in it and, and showing that you're willing to help out in any capacity. And I think Dan did that many, many decades ago and he continued to uh, stay around and like I said, get financially involved. So he's a guy that uh, me and you worked with at uh, NWL. He helped me a lot at Metro pro and helps now with central States. Um, just at, at the door, you know, just helping people, uh, navigate, uh, the independent world because i know he loves wrestling and he wants it to stay around especially in the kansas city area and other people uh i still am trying to get billy howard to come on here who is a worker who has been around kansas city many years uh akio sato is on the radar and then uh some other people that or some other topics i mean you need to talk about are the nwl and just the uh, independent scene in kansas city over the last 20 years because that uh, even though it's not the same level as you know what we all remember in the 70s 80s and 90s uh, is still sort of interesting to see how it is morphed into what it is in the last uh, since the turn of the this new century yeah absolutely is there a <laughs> this is a dumb question and i realize that is there any way that shane douglas could be interviewed and has he worked kansas city enough to even care because i need to talk to shane douglas well, I don't know. Shane Douglas would be uh, I mean, I think every wrestler, any worker can have an opinion about Kansas City and the central states territory, especially Shane. He grew up in the he was still at the uh, he was he started in the dying days of the territory system. So he he would actually have I'm sure he has plenty of thoughts on Bob Geigel and the uh, territory Harley race. Everybody has a story about Harley race. You know, Dr. Tom Pritchard was not a guy that ever worked here, but he had a lot of uh, you know, he had talked to many people and, and knew all about the Kansas City area. And of course, when he progressed into his career as a trainer at the WWE, he knew all about Harley Race and and hanging out with him. So we talked to him about that. So anyone can be connected <laughs> to Kansas City because of all the personalities that were so well known to hear. Uh, people knew them in other capacities. What did he say your your booze was in your desk drawer? What did he call it? Did he call it old timer or something? I, I forgot. Like what he said that you the, the kind of booze you had in your desk drawer. I, yeah, I forget. <laughs> Doctor Tom is a is a quick witty man, and like he throws some stuff out. I don't remember, but he's uh he was a, he was a great dude. Super yeah, super funny, super sharp, and you know, little uh, teaser about the old NWL. A lot of people may not remember, but we were going to have Dr. Uh, Dr. Tom seminar the night before our biggest show ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, Dr. Tom, actually, when we were putting together the, 
the crew for NWL. Now, if you don't know what the NWL is, it was called the National Wrestling League, and we'll get all into this. But it was a it was put together by uh, the financer was a guy named Major Bazin, and he was the owner. And it was only around for a couple of years. Uh, it was around for about two to three years back behind the stage, behind the scenes. But you know, uh, show wise, it was only around about a year and a half. Yeah, but uh, yeah. but when we were putting together uh, the crew that he was having, which I still tell people today. NWL had wrestlers on full benefits, mm-hmm. had a had its own performance center, uh-huh. uh, had its it was just amazing. I had our own offices on a high rise in Kansas City. It was just it was an amazing experience for everybody who was involved. But one person that we tried to bring in as the head trainer at one point was I t- I had conversations with Tom Pritchard because he was the first guy when I was talking to Major like if you want a real trainer. Dr. Tom is just sitting out there ready to go. And of course, at that point, Dr. Tom was probably, uh, I don't know, getting close to 60 years old and he is married and lives in Tennessee and it would have to, you know, take something very concrete to come move over here at that point in his life. And of course, any startup like that is not something you can really bank on. So he ended up obviously not coming, but uh, yeah, he, I've had ties with him since I was in my teens. So I, I love me some Dr. Tom. Well, before we get to my favorite segment of the show, <laughs> I, I just had a thought, how are we going to do these NWL episodes and not bury somebody? <laughs> well, we like multiple, somebody. like multiple people. Who said like, we weren't going to bury people? <laughs> well, I don't know. Is that off, I, is that off the table? I'm sorry. No, I, 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 I don't think we can tell the story without being honest. And being wonder, honest is going to require us to, to be honest and to be honest about the people that were involved and just, yeah. Hey. I think wrestling, my, hey, a lot of corporations are like this, so it's, I don't want to just say wrestling's like this, but I think wrestling is one of the worst businesses as far as people of an administrative level uh, being able to be real and honest with people because <laughs> they, they, they don't really like to do that at any level in wrestling. And uh, sometimes when people do hear that, they get really upset, you know, because they're not used to, first of all, they're not used to hearing it. Um, you know, I mean, I used to say, I love Gerald Briscoe and he's another guy I want to have on here because he, oh my you know, God, I, I had some out. great times with him, but Gerald Briscoe, uh, he's a guy that I always laughed at because he would tell multiple people instead of saying like, you're yeah, son, you're not good enough to make it. He would say, well, you need to put on weight. And then I'm like, okay. And then they'd go put on 50 pounds or whatever. Well, you need to slim down and it would just go like, <laughs> yo, yo. And I'm like, he really just doesn't want to tell this person that they're never going to get a job. Right. And I think that's pretty common in wrestling, but uh, sometimes you come across some people that are honest and it becomes a problem. And uh, yeah, and it, NWL, <laughs> what were we going to say? For all of his faults, major was a brutal guy at times. <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh, I love Ooh. working for major based in, um, you know, like Vince McMahon was my favorite boss to be around because just the level of what he had uh, done was just off the charts. But Major Bazin, very similar to Vince in many ways, as far as a, a serial entrepreneur, a guy who could fall down today and get up tomorrow and, you know, do something just as big as what happened the day before. Um, and Major was one of those guys. And I think there's a lot of perception about the NWL that people don't understand. And I think we need to talk about it because uh, I don't really, I've never told 
many stories. I don't think you have either. No. I know there have been some people that were, uh, you know, that didn't exactly like how it worked out on their side to have told their stories. But, you know, I really have a somewhat unbiased opinion of what the NWL was because um, I was there from pretty much day one and uh, I, I helped build the thing. And, you know, although there was a lot of flaws at the beginning, I, it turned out to be something that anyone involved in it, uh, no one, people that invo- were involved in the administrative side of it, the people that work day to day in that company, none of them hated it. They all really liked it. And uh, all I have to say in closing on that before we get to our final segment is I'll see you guys. I'm, I'm, I'm going to WWE on Monday. <laughs> yes, I've heard. I've, I remember who that is. That's one person that you might bring up at some point. Uh, but there's, there's, there's many stories that we probably can't tell, but uh, there's also a lot of stories you can. So, oh, I can't wait, dude. That that I literally just remembered that scenario because there was so many wild times in the office, and. <laughs> dude i cannot wait anyways all right we've come to the final segment of the show chris you know i love putting you in the uh hot seat and if you pick the same thing you did yesterday i am going to change it up a little bit so here are your choices for today we can do santa's sack in honor of the uh the holiday season here we -hmm. can do mount rushmore we can do the hot seat like we've done before or we can do uh hogan's history I want to do hot seat today. Oh, all right. Here we go. This is this is uh this is one of my favorite ones. All right. So Chris, I'm going to ask you or I'm going to tell you or or kind of bring up a series of uh incidents, names, um and just tell me the first thing that pops into your head. Okay. Okay. Favorite Ric Flair match. Um Okay, I'm a WWF guy, not a NWA, WCW guy. So my favorite Ric Flair match would probably be, uh, it would probably, God, I'm, I'm going with, look, there's some easy ones. Like Shawn Michaels Flair was great. I, I get why people love that. But I'm going to go older and I'm going to say uh, Flair, Randy Savage mm. at uh, WrestleMania. Um, that was like a, uh, for, for someone that didn't really know who Ric Flair was when I was a kid, when he came over with the belt and then got involved with, with Savage, uh, with Miss Elizabeth. And then you had Mr. Perfect involved. That was just some really good stuff in an era that it was sort of going downhill. Really? I mean, Flair's run in WWF in the, uh, early nineties is not exactly a barn burner, but, uh, it was, uh, that was a highlight. Definitely. I, I think I already know the answer to this one, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Rick Rude, WWF or WCW? Oh, yeah, it's easy. It's uh, WWF. I mean, he was him with Bobby the Brain Heenan as part of the Heenan family and just some of the some of the angles he got to be with. Uh, obviously, his, his final one being with DX before he jumped ship back over there. But, I mean... You know, I, I don't know how you could even pick WCW. He he had an injury when he went over there pretty quickly after he went over there. So he he uh his his matches with the Ultimate Warrior, he really uh held him to a higher level. And uh, I thought he was great at WWF. Loved him. All right. Favorite story that you had a part in writing. Um well, the most infamous would be uh Katie Vick. <laughs> Dang it. Uh, I but I mean save that one. It's not exactly like uh, it's not good, but it was, um, you know, gosh, it's such a collaborative effort there. It's really hard. Like, you know, Brian Gewurz, whose book is really good, 
Um, he was the head writer there for many years and now he works for the rock. Uh, he's a very talented guy. He is, uh, he was basically the one that came up with all the main storyline and stuff at that point. So I was relegated to like the f- women's division or the, uh, tag teams or, or mid card stuff. So, um, you know, we got to, we got to do the Katie Vick stuff though. That's a great story from start to finish, how that all came about. And it had nothing to do with necrophilia by the way, until they, until they shot that backstage promo at a funeral ooh, home. I want to uh, hear, I want to, Ooh, that, that is a story for another time. I, I can't but, wait to hear that. But the three that I always talk about that people remember are Katie Vick, uh, the Billy and Chuck gay wedding and the, uh, uh, Al Wilson sort of weird, wow. uh, angle with Don Marie and right. his daughter, Tori Wilson. So those are right. the three weirdest things that happened when we were there, not to mention the rise of Brock Lesnar, by the way, uh, from, uh, from the, you know, to start his career with the taker and all that. I was there for that. So yeah, it was a lot of fun stuff then. Vince Russo pro or con. Um, you know, like he was, uh, for when he was at the era that he was at WWE, he was a pro. Um, I think he helped like with the edginess when he was there in the mid nineties to to the late nineties. Uh, I can't take away what he did. I was there the day that he and Ferrara jumped to WCW and the next morning, like everyone was freaking out. Cause there's just a weird in the office that is, I'm not talking about Vince. I'm talking about like just people like walking around the office, like, Oh my gosh, they left. They're going to WCW. And that was just a interesting day because uh, you know, being a young guy at that point, you're just like, Oh my gosh, what does this mean? Like he, he was one of the guys that was here when we were at our highest and he left like overnight. Uh, but, uh, when he was there, I think he was a pro. Um, but I, ever since then, I think, um, it's, he's been sort of a con. He actually came back the week before I joined the writing team at WWE. He had come in, uh, and had an interview with Stephanie and then was escorted into the writer's room with Gewertz and Ed Kosky and Michael Hayes, all these people, and sort of like talked with them. And I think as soon as he walked out, I think everyone looked around the room and was like, we don't want him here. And uh, he, it's interesting to hear Vince Russo's take on that because I've heard him talk about that uh, when they, you know, he obviously acts like they were begging him to come back. And uh, that everyone couldn't handle it because they they were all scared of his talent or whatever he would say. Uh, but um, now he just he wasn't going to fit in the way the things were after he left. Man, you, I, I'm shocked. I've never talked to you about some of these stories. Well, we were really busy, also. <laughs> all right, yeah. um, favorite uh, one song that you could listen to over and over and over again, never get tired of. Uh, um, man, geez, that's a tough one. Or do a, uh, or, or a band. You can do a band. I'll let you out. You can um, do a band. <laughs> I'm staring at a blues brothers CD right now. Love the blues brothers. Greatest hits. I can listen to that all day. Um, but I did not know that. Wow. I'm a big George Jones fan. Love him. Um, have I'm you seen George Mon- and Tammy? I have not. No. Okay. Uh, huge monkeys fan. I know it's sort of weird. I, I know, I know you are a huge monkeys fan. I, I grew up, I grew up with the monkeys on uh, reruns on uh, Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon and MTV. Absolutely, and, uh, saw them as my first concert, and I've always stayed uh, super t- connected with the monkeys. So, um, yeah, there's a I, there you go. Pick, okay, take awesome. Pick. Favorite action um, franchise in movies. Um. 
I mean, I love Star Wars, but uh, I love really? Die Hard. I love Die Hard. Okay. Um, I did picture uh, I, you a Star Wars guy. Well, I'm not. A, I'm not walking around in my freaking you know Obi Wan Kenobi outfit every day. I'm not. Well, cosplaying we wouldn't. We wouldn't be. We wouldn't be friends if you if you did that. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I I like Star Wars. Never saw one episode of Star Trek though. Um, really. Yeah, because you know, I was a kid. And it was uh, Star Wars was all the rage. You have all the toys, and that's what you know. I didn't. I wasn't a space guy necessarily. I was just. I like Star Wars. Uh, you know, I, I would. I guess my favorite action movie would probably be Die Hard. Okay. Two more questions. One of them is going to be about wrestling, and one of them is going to be about get to know Goff a little bit more. So the wrestling question I have for you is if you had a non-wrestling fan sitting in front of you right now, what is the one match you would show them to try to get them on board? Well, it goes back to what we talked about yesterday. Uh, my favorite match in WWF, just because I was there uh, in person, is the Bad Blood 97 main event, Hell in the Cell, first Hell in the Cell ever, which was Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker with the addition of Kane at the end of it. Uh, to me, that is uh, Pro Wrestling 101. You had the hottest heel and his little faction uh, out there taking on arguably one of the, you know, if not the biggest baby face of all time in wrestling. Uh, you know, obviously he's not Hogan level, but Undertaker's right up there. Um, so you have Undertaker and Shawn Michaels, and then in order to give sort of an out to move on to the next angle, and you're not going to have Taker win the title, so you allow Taker to move on as he is introduced to uh, Kane with Paul Bear, and uh, I just the thought that was like largest luchador. <laughs> the world's yes, it, like so we we talked about this before. If you haven't heard the story, it's like. I was I was going to go work at WWE, right? I I was home visiting my family, and I was going back uh, to work, and I had been given free uh, front row tickets right behind the commentators for that show, and so me and like three of my friends uh, were sitting front row, which was unbelievable because it was the side where Shawn Michaels fell off the cage and was bleeding right on the floor by us. But as we walked through the back, which they probably would never allow you to do this now, but we were walking through and they were taking photos of this large guy in a mask and like his outfit, red, you know, flashy red outfit. We had no idea who the hell he was. And I don't <laughs> think it was me. Someone else was like, is that a, see a luchador? He's huge, you know, whatever, because he's wearing a mask. And, um, and you gotta, yeah, this is a long time ago. You got to take into account. No one knew the hell Kane wasn't a thing yet. So you didn't know it was Kane. Right. And so, uh, when you're walking, uh, you know, you didn't know who that was. And then at the very end of that match, of course, you see Kane come out and start a new, uh, a new life with undertaker. So I, I don't know, to me, that's like wrestling in a nutshell there, you know, like the, the two top guys and it's, uh, the, the program is then diverted to a new direction with the addition of Kane. You save face with Sean. He doesn't lose the title. Undertaker doesn't lose either because he's shocked that his brother, who we thought was dead, is returned. So, um, <laughs> if you don't like that kind of fantasy stuff with, like, you know, I know a lot of people hate the Undertaker-Kane sort of, you know, gaga. You know, they hate that kind of, uh, this is not real um, but I think if you're, I don't know, that's some of the best, not real stuff you'll ever see. So that that's, that's probably what I'd show them. All right. And final question is what is your favorite restaurant in the Kansas city <laughs> Metro area? 
Well, I eat out so much with two young children. I mean, they're just so much of a joy to take out. By the way, you have a young kid now, so you're not going to really probably eat out again until you're probably 60. Sorry to tell you. No, um, I we, we ate out last night. Whatever. There's you like did. periods of time with your children that you can take them out for a small dose. You know, if you can take your kid oh, a little bit while they're nice and young, like little baby babies, you can yeah. take them out. Yeah. Yeah. But, but wait till they're like one or two and they're oh, crying yeah. and screaming and you're like looking around in a nice restaurant. You're like, I hate ruining this experience for everybody else because my, I shouldn't be having a kid here. What am I doing? <laughs> and uh, then you're relegated to like McDonald's or like somewhere loud, like a Texas roadhouse that you're not going to offend anybody yet um so but my favorite restaurant in kansas city um gosh uh like plaza three's great um it was uh let's see i love jay gilbert's you've been there uh uh-uh, no i, I don't think i've back half it's okay. on Metcalf. Uh, okay. If you go, like, it's like 89 in Metcalf. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's like a steak seafood place. And uh, that was one of the first dates I had with my wife. We went there and it's still there. So I'm going to go Jay Gilbert's. Jay Gilbert's. Okay. I'm actually going to have to try that. Um, but yeah. All right. Well, that was the hot seat with our, our fearless leader, Chris Goff. Thank you so much, Chris, for enduring another hot seat. Maybe next week we can do uh santa's sack because we'll still be in the holiday season hopefully <laughs> and uh yeah, i love his sack yeah hopefully if we uh if we uh stay on our recording semi-recording schedule but anyways chris i want to wish you uh merry christmas um and too, merry, Chris- merry christmas to everybody who has uh listened to this podcast merry christmas to my brother who seems to be our number one fan who's always asking me when is another episode coming out um and uh yeah merry christmas chris you too, Gabe. Have a good Christmas with your daughter. First Christmas, so this will yeah. be fun. Oh, but, uh, have a, everybody out there, have a great holiday season, and we'll come back, and it'll probably be an uh, interview with Dan Geyer next next show, so look forward to that. And we'll be talking a lot about Harley Race and Midwest Independent Wrestling, as well as all the other stuff he saw uh, on a national level when he was around Harley and around the mid-Missouri area. So looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. Got a lot of big things coming in 2023. I mean, there's, I mean, like you said, this is just such fertile ground. I mean, we should actually even do a story about Chris Goff in the WWE, honestly, because there's, <sighs> I have so many questions about the 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 personalities that you you i mean you worked side by side obviously with vince and all that stuff but with like michael hayes oh yeah Uh, unbelievable i mean michael hayes actually i'll have to tell you the story sometime when michael hayes spent the night at my parents house shut up is that and then yeah and he slept like one hour because we were out really late and it had another tease to that story. It started with Michael Hayes uh, asking Nicole Bass to take her top off. So it was a good night. But uh, oh my he, God. Introducing Chris, my parents to Michael Hayes was unbelievable. <laughs> so Chris, it was good I, stuff. I have heard a lot of, you know, not a lot, but a good amount of these stories. I haven't heard this one, and I, I I don't even want to hear it until we talk about it on the podcast. So I can. Oh, I so won't I can, tell you. Don't worry. Oh my God, what? Oh, I can't wait. Anyways, thank you all so much for joining us here. Um, we really appreciate it, and thank you, Chris. Merry Christmas, everybody, and we will see you on the other side, right here on the worst territory in the world. It's the worst territory in the world.